Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Morning, um, Paul. I know you're uh, listening right now. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Chicken Little? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. pretty much so. What do, you, what do you remember about Chicken Little? The sky is falling. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, and in some places on some days, Chicken Little wasn't wrong. The sky sometimes is falling. Hmm. Uh, that is my uh, that is my headline lead for this hour. Parts of a Chinese Long March rocket fell into the Indian Ocean near the Maldives. It was China's manned space engineering office that reported that late Saturday night, ending days of international speculation and chicken littling over whether plummeting rocket debris might be scattered over a populated area. There you go. That is my chicken little reference today. And it reminded me of an ad that I had been seeing lately from Ikea, which I find very, like, crazy and dystopian. This Ikea ad features a massive meteor of trash. Um, like like there's even a dryer in it that's visible as the thing is swirling around. And this trash meteor is hurtling toward Earth. And there's a child featured in the ad who collects a water bottle that falls from the sky and puts it in a recycling bin. And this is apparently the way that... Um, the tide is going to be turned, and I guess the earth is going to um, not uh, fall victim to trash meteors. Back in November of 2020, IKEA aired a even more dystopian Christmas ad with, I mean, Christmas music and everything, in which a child is running in desperate fear as giant pieces of food are falling from the sky. Um, the lesson there was about all the food that people waste. And Um, These ads are apparently a part of a long series that began with something called One Little Thing. And it's the the conversation is trying to suggest that lots of one little things, when you put them all together, become big things. And if we want to solve big problems, then it requires that each and every one of us do one little thing. So what's your one little thing? I find it interesting that in the lead off, um, they chose to have the woman whose one little thing was to turn on a light at the very end of the uh, uh, of this ad, she switches off the light. And so what's the one little thing you're going to do? Like, I think that's a good question to ask. Um, and from a Christian worldview, there's a lot to work with here. Light and darkness, uh, food, material possessions, accumulation, gluttony, waste, stewardship, caring for one another, um, and the reality that this is actually not all there is. Humanity is not, in fact, going to save herself nor Um, nor the planet. Like, right? There is a redemptive reality to the way history is unfolding, and that is under the sovereignty of God and fully within the scope of his plan. And so I think that as Christians, even when we're watching IKEA ads that uh, feature the falling sky and headlines featuring falling sky, pieces uh, falling from the sky, um, it provokes us to have conversations about what else is out there. 
what's beyond the atmosphere um, and and who is ultimately uh, governing all of it. Uh, God doesn't just have the whole world in his hands. He has it all in his hands from here to eternity. All right, up next, Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We are going to talk about um, well, a piece uh, posted at religionnews.com, the evangelical sexual abuse crisis as the spiritual warfare of our time. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm uh, talking with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Normally, she and I are talking about um, literature and these great works that she is helping us understand. And so I want you to reach back and get those prior conversations that I've had with Karen here on Mornings with Carmen. You can do it by grabbing the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. Today, Karen and I are going to talk about a topic she has written about at Religion News Service, and that is sexual abuse in the evangelical church. Karen, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. It's good to be with you again. It's good to have you. So um, in this Religion News Service piece, which people can find at religionnews.com, the evangelical sexual abuse crisis is the spiritual warfare of our time. Um, You know, one of the things that as I was reading it, Karen, you make reference to like being in hotel rooms and at conferences. And I was thinking, wow, that sounds like a long time ago. (laughs) A world ago, right? Right. Yes, it was. (laughs) Yeah, so take us. Hopefully, yeah, I know. So take us back because the way that the the way that you unfold the story is, I think, really helpful because you do sort of move through how you became increasingly aware of the crisis in the church. Yeah, I mean, it really for me it started in um, in 2016, and it wasn't just because of just because of the election of of. Trump, who, um, you know, we know is abusive toward women and and other people. But I started, many women started speaking up about their abuse in in the context of that. And I wrote an article about about what women and men who've been abused want to know, because I had so many conversations with them. And, you know, I was starting to understand a little bit more and see things I hadn't seen before. And then we had that, um, that that moment in our nation when Rachel Den Hollander stood before uh, the sentencing judge of her abuser, an Olympic doctor, um, and gave this powerful testimony about the abuse, but also the gospel. And I was appalled and, and astounded that that someone in such a high position of power and connected to so many and in front of so many could abuse so many little girls. And it just you know, and I know people have known all these things all along, but for some of us, we are just seeing what's been there all along. And then finally, my in my own denomination, there was uh, revelations of abuse cover-up. And again, I was in a hotel room hearing the news of this, and that was the morning that I was attending a conference on women in the church, ironically. Um, but I never made it because I stepped into a crosswalk and got hit by a bus and spent the next days in the hospital. And um, I think that's where you and I first met, isn't it? I know. I was, I, as I was reading this, I'm like, that's actually the first time that I met Karen in person. 
um, over you a cup of coffee. You came to see me. Yeah, yes, I came to see you. Yeah, you brought me a cup I of know. coffee in the hospital. <laughs> well, you were in the hospital in my town, and so I was like, well, I have to go because she doesn't live here, and right? And so, um, yeah, you are you Thank are you. a precious sister in Christ, and I, um, you know, you're the way that you are willing to shine light on difficult topics and lead us into conversations and help us have those conversations well is is a gift. And you don't shy yeah. away from it. And because you are a woman, you are able to speak in evangelical contexts in ways that men who have the same convictions are not able mm-hmm. to speak because it has become a, you know, a discourse that women must be engaged in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was just, um, you know, and, and somehow you, I, the, the connection for me, just to, because it sounds so strange, what is getting hit by a bus have to do with the sexual abuse crisis? Well, of course, part of it is my my sense of disorientation and anger and fear when I was when I was walking, which certainly had contributed to my getting hit by a bus. Um, but also um, because I am not a, a survivor of sexual abuse. I don't think, and I and I, I still can't say it's the same, but the physical and um, emotional trauma that I experienced from getting hit by a bus is something that has helped me. I now know how trauma works, and I did not know before, and I did not mm. understand. I thought you could just talk it away. I thought you could just, just fix it and move on. Uh, and that's just simply not true. So now, I, now I'm in a place where I do have a much better understanding of what um, abuse survivors go through and what's necessary for their healing. And it's not just, oh, forget about it and move on or, oh, you know, forgive the person and move on. It just doesn't work that way. And the church has to understand that. Karen Swallow Pryor and I are going to take a very brief break. We're going to, um, we come back, we're going to talk about the reality that um, the pain persists and the pain comes back. And we're also going to talk about the reality of the unseen realm, spiritual warfare. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, we're talking about a piece that she has written. It's posted at religionnews.com. Karen, um, how is... The sexual abuse crisis, uh, particularly in the evangelical church, how is this the spiritual warfare of our time? Well, you know, of course, there are many other issues. Um, The headline was a bit of a, um, you know, attention grabber. But in a sense, I I do think that it is the spiritual warfare of our time because anything that attacks the bearers of God's image— attacks us as men or as women or as human beings. And of course, sex is right at the heart of that because sex is the thing that produces more image bearers of God. And so to abuse that and pervert that and distort it is one of the most evil things that I can think that that Satan would do. And I am watching as, as someone who's been part of the church for all of my life, I am, and and seeing a lot of things, I am seeing now the church being divided and pulled apart and, and, you know, it will not be destroyed. Uh, It, it, the current (laughs) iteration of it, maybe if we, if we don't, um, if we don't wake up, but the church is being um, torn apart over this issue because it is, because 
of the people who the people who are being abused and those who are, who are participating in that or refusing to see it there are those who are deceiving others by abusing by covering up and i just get story after story almost every day from people now i'm not even the most prominent um ally of abuse survivors but yet these stories are just pouring forth and i think i think that's a good thing these things are coming to light as you talked about in the uh, just before our our segments together um the light is shining on these things and i think that is making um the forces of evil angry yeah people prefer darkness to light and they have for um forever and ever. And that is a challenge, I think, in this conversation. So we have major headlines related to uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and Ravi Zacharias, you know, as a as an individual. We now have these Josh Duggar um, headlines mm. coming out again, which is, you know, sort of taking us back an entire generation in, um, in this conversation. Um, t- talk with us about uh, the just this current, how do we have these conversations well? If, you know, as you say, I am not a sexual um, uh, assault victim. I'm not a survivor of of sexual abuse. Um, But how do I have these conversations well? Well, there, you know, there are so many layers to this. One, the first thing that I would say is that when someone comes to you with a story, um, we don't, automatically just disbelieve them. Um, I confess that even as I was lying in the hospital um, after the bus accident three years ago, um, some advocates for uh, an abuse survivor reached out to me and I didn't believe them. I thought that they had an agenda. Um, I thought they were after something. Of course, I, you know, I was in the hospital, I was medicated and I didn't know anything about these people. Um, but that story has, has turned out to actually be true. Uh, and so I have learned, um, that I I think part of the reason I didn't want to believe it is because I, 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 like most of us, I'm innocent of it. I don't, I don't want to think that people could do those terrible things. Um, but a lot has happened in the past three years, and I have I now know that a lot of people that I never would have believed would do these things have done them and worse. So we have to take our rose-colored glasses off. That's the first thing. We have to listen to and receive the stories of those who've experienced these things. Um, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the facts may not all line up. Their memories aren't going to be perfect. None of ours are. are. But what they experienced is something that they experienced. Uh, we also have to become places in our churches and our parachurch uh, organizations where it is not an easy place for abusers to hide. That is a really big problem. Sex abuse is everywhere in the world. It's been every time. But Churches and ministries are places where abusers know they can go and do what they want to do. Again, I think because we are so trusting, we are so naive, we're so forgiving. There are lots of reasons why, but we have to ask ourselves why uh, and not be those places anymore. Be places where it is safe for women and children and men, not for abusers. I think, um, Karen, that I'm hopeful that there will be um Christians who have committed these crimes and sins who are repentant and will eventually come and help us equip the church to do that 
because mm-hmm. I don't think that until an abuser tells us, like, why it's so easy um, mm-hmm. to use the church and its, uh, you know, and, and its many expressions as a platform or a, you know, or a place where they're safe to abuse, I don't think until they tell us, we're going to know. Because, I mean, it's, it, because we are trusting and we are a body and we, uh, you know, and we do extend grace and on and on and on. And so um, I think we can be as vigilant as possible, but I'm, I am not of the, uh, I have no illusions that we're going to be able to fully protect everyone all the time because sin is real and it's in the church. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the bigger question is what we do with it when we find out. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's where the problem is. I mean, we know in the Duger situation that his problems were uncovered long ago and they were not Mm. um, addressed in any way that, uh, was effective at all, and he was allowed to go on and and even become involved in Christian organizations. So it's it's um, you know we really have to you know we have to figure out what our real values are as well. Uh, I think that's a big part of it too. We like we like celebrities, we like power, uh, and we uh, we you know we're we're enamored of 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 the people who you know have the have the reality television I sh- show I guess and and uh, are more willing to. Um, you know, to give grace, so to speak, to to someone like that, just because of the access they have to power and celebrity, um, rather than really deal out consequences that are effective and protect future victims. Yeah, I, I think that the um, the the covering up of things when God exposes sexual sin, and then institutionally, in some way, we cover that up because we're enamored with the wrong things. Um, it, it, that is that is a huge part of this conversation and one that I think is just beginning in in mm-hmm. most churches and uh, and church related institutions. And it's so easy to 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 say that and to think that we're doing those things for the right reasons. That's actually the hardest thing, because we can say, well, this this person has has advanced the gospel across the globe or if if we say something, it will bring the ministry down. I mean, they're all what we think are good reasons, but ultimately God blesses us for the small acts of faithfulness, and then he will do the big things. But we somehow think that our the big names and the big ministries and the big impact, it, that those things are in our hands and they really aren't. And that's a big part of the problem, I think. Yeah, there are no small people. There are no insignificant sexual sins. And mm-hmm. in that in that worldview, there are no small acts. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we've got yeah. things kind of mixed up. And hopefully, mm-hmm. prayerfully, this crisis will show us. Maybe not everyone, but I think some of us are starting to see and understand. And I'm thankful for that. I am too. Karen Swallow Pryor, I'm thankful for you each and every day. Um, are you grading papers right now? It's the end of a semester. What's happening in your I world? am in between. I, I've graded a batch and I get another batch today. So yes, you caught me at All right. the right, right moment. I love it. So, All right. Yeah. Blessings on you. Blessings, blessings on you. That's Karen Swallow Pryor. You can find her at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can easily find her um, on Twitter at, oh, help me out, KSP? Yeah, KSPRI. KS Pryor. KS Pryor. There you go. All right. We'll be right back. Healthcare continues to uh, t- 
top the list of concerns for a lot of people across the country. It doesn't it doesn't make the headlines as often as it used to when we talked a lot about the reform and the need for reforms in healthcare in the United States of America. Um, but it has not left the uh, the top of concern for my next guest, Todd Furness. He is the author of the 60% Solution: Rethinking Healthcare. He joins me next. This is Max Lucado. Jesus wants to bring joy to the people of this generation, and he has enlisted some special agents of happiness to do the job. You and me. Not an easy task. The people in our world can be moody, fickle, and stubborn, and that just describes my wife's husband. No, if we're going to find the joy that comes through giving joy away, we need instruction. No wonder the Bible has so much to say about finding the joy in the act of sharing it. The New Testament contains more than 50 one another statements. You and I indwell a lonely planet. We cannot solve every problem in society, but we can bring smiles to a few faces. And who knows, if you brighten your corner of the world and I do the same in mine, a quiet revolution of joy might break out. This is Max Lucado, and this is how happiness happens. Joining me now, Todd Furness, author of The 60% Solution. You can find it at the 60%solution.com. Spell all the words out, The 60% Solution. Todd, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. I'm very excited to be here. All right. Well, we have a mutual friend, um, Jim Dennison, who said uh, that I needed to talk to you. And after reading this, I thought, yeah, no doubt. So let's um, let's talk about why you have a passion and an interest in a total reform of healthcare and healthcare systems in America. And and then I want to ask you the question, are we even allowed to talk like that? <laughs> well, thank you for the reference to Jim Dennison, who is just my hero. He's such a fantastic gentleman and a scholar and a theologian. He's a brilliant guy and it's a delight to work for them. Just for full disclosure, I'm on his board of directors and it's been an amazing honor to serve him. Um, I, I'm passionate about healthcare because I like to say that I've touched the industry from virtually every angle and I've developed what I would call a worm's eye view of the industry, meaning kind of from the inside out. And I've seen just how much we have these passionate, mission-driven healthcare professionals and how hamstrung they are in their ability to actually deliver healthcare or how much risk they run when they try and do so. You know, I started this journey, unfortunately, with a, a sad and tragic plane crash with my mom and my dad uh, back when I was 17 years old and and uh, really started being very, very intimately involved with healthcare at that point in time and have been in and around it ever since, ranging from serving in, an, in the intellectual property and intellectual and uh, information technology areas all the way out to running hospitals and trying to clean up big messes. So I've been involved in, uh, in many angles of it. And even now we're still involved in a bunch of claims processing issues that are unnecessarily complicated and, and uh, unhelpful. So I really like to see us return to a position where people actually take more enjoyment and more responsibility out of their own and serving their own health care and helping doctors and nurses be able to provide that care. 
your own um your own story related to you know the experience of your parents and particularly your mom is you know i think the heart hook for a lot of people in this conversation and so you know let me just say that uh todd lost his dad in a southern airways flight 242 crash in 1977 and uh and that crash resulted in a lengthy and um really lifelong physical struggle for todd's mom and so there's a there's a heart story in all of this as well. The book is the sixty percent solution. Um, you um, you stray from what we might call a traditional approach to you know what kind of reforms our healthcare system needs, and you really do talk about you know the synergy between consumerism and compassionate care. Uh, talk about that as like as kind of a, a a necessary approach in the days in which we live. Like there has to be a motivation for me as a consumer to want to make this happen. Well, thank you for seeing that in the book. I'm 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 really pleased that that spoke to you, because in my view, this this relationship between the caregiver and the patient has been interrupted by government and by insurance companies. And let's just assume for the moment that everybody is well-meaning in what they're intending to do and you don't cast any aspersions on their ambitions or their goals uh, necessarily. But let's just assume that everybody's trying to do the right thing. Even if that's the case, what happens is there are unintended consequences that occur when somebody else is paying for your health care. So let's imagine you go in and you go to the doctor. First question you ought to be asking is not what's your copay and not what's your deductible, but who does your doctor work for? I mean, I'm, that's, I'm not being silly about that. I'm genuinely asking who does your doctor work for? Does the doctor work for a clinic that's independent? Does the doctor work for a clinic that's linked to, the, to a hospital? Does the doctor work for the insurance company by virtue of their payment mechanisms. And what's happened recently that's even you know more riddled with conflicts of interest is, does your doctor actually work for the insurance company because they're an employee of the insurance company? As a case in point, United Healthcare in its umbrella organization now employs over 50,000 physicians. So I think there's a legit, the first question you have to ask is, you know, who, who, you, who does the doctor work for and how will that inform or influence the advice that I'm getting from the doctor as my caregiver to me as the patient. Now, if you what you notice is that if all of a sudden <clears throat> that patient is paying for that doctor's visit or for that care directly, then everything changes. The information flow changes, the education changes, the longitudinal data relationship changes, the confidence and trust that the patient has in the doctor changes, all those things inert to the benefit of the patient-physician relationship. Yeah, and I so I'm going to guess that my doctor works for the hospital that is a part of the university that bears the name of right. I mean, it's, but I could be wrong, and so I think that's a, a really interesting and provocative um, question, and I'm going to ask. Uh, and you know, it's not like we just have one doctor, right? You know, we have a primary care physician, and then that person often refers us to other people for other things. I have to keep asking the question. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so one of the things that's happening right now, with, and I'm just going to use United, not that they're a bad company, I'm just pointing it out because they've got economic interests that drive them in this direction, is United is now saying, we're going to close our network 
to new doctors. Then they're saying, we're going to reduce the reimbursements we pay to doctors currently in our network. <clears throat> in our network. And the reason they're doing that is because they're driving traffic back to their own employed physicians, who also then will control all the referrals inside of that group. So what happens then is there are economic interests that have accumulated in United Healthcare that say we're going to drive costs and payments in a different direction that has nothing to do with the care of the patient. All it, all it does is it, it drives the profitability of United Healthcare, a publicly traded company. Hmm. All right. So we're um, we're talking with Todd Furness. The book is the sixty percent solution. You can find it at the sixty percent solution dot com. Todd is uh, is saying, look, each and every one of us uh, needs to be financially capable. We need to be educated, and we need to be engaged. We're going to um, talk about the systems view that Todd takes in the book. We're going to talk about the five interconnected components of the 60% solution. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Todd Furness. We're talking about the 60% solution. You can find it at rethinking.com. Healthcare, lots of really good information um, at that site. All right, Todd, talk about you know the systems view. Like I think of you know the healthcare systems, but I'm not sure I thought of the healthcare system in the way that you um, that you kind of unpack it for us. Thank you. So one of the things that's happened in lots of industries, and healthcare is no exception, is that everybody becomes so focused on their particular area of concern that they drive down deep into it and they lose perspective on the way that it, it interoperates with other components of the healthcare industry. So the healthcare industry operates as a system in a way. And so the question is, how do you look at what I would call the major muscle groups uh, in, the, in that system to really make impactful change? So the first thing we do is we say, look, healthcare right now is reactive in nature. You only go to the doctor when you have a problem. You only go to the hospital when you have a problem. And the doctors are all trained to fix problems. And so we need to reorient that. That that piece of it is not a new message to say, look, we need to move towards more preventative care and wellness. That's a, a time-honored message. But the way we engage with our primary care physicians needs to change. We need to create what I call longitudinal databases. In other words, collect data over time in the office of your primary care physician so that you can then um, not only pay for that directly and get the information associated with it, but also have that doctor understand you. Frequently, we go to doctors and we have three to six minutes with that physician. They don't know your name. They've never seen you before. You're in and out and, you get, and the insurance company pays for it. So that's, I mean, we need to change that model and have a, a, primary, a good relationship with our primary care physician. The second thing is we, our systems don't work. So accounting and IT don't work together. They're incompatible. They're frequently interoperable and not interoperable with other systems. And that allows the third thing, which is hidden pricing. Insurance companies don't pay a particular price when you go to the hospital. Most people don't realize that. What they do is they pay something called a percentage of gross bill charges. So that encourages the hospital to throw everything they can on the bill. And then the insurance company pays a percentage of that bill. So let's call it 40% of the bill. So there's and so there's no real incentive for the hospital to focus on reducing costs. To the contrary, they're focused on increasing the costs. 
The fourth thing is we have uh, under President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, he implemented something called health savings accounts. And these are tax advantaged accounts that allow people to save money and use them for health care costs in a way that are very attractive. So you can actually build value and build uh, a, a reserve of wealth there. And but, but we're limited in what we can use it for. And there's no correlation between your health savings account and your deductible. So we could we should be able to fix that so that we can change and reduce the cost of monthly premiums. And the last thing is just what I call hyper-regulation. Everything from the intervention of government into the doctor's visit to the way that we actually train and educate nurses and physicians is unimaginably regulated, and we need to cut some of that out. There's a way to think about this, Carmen, if you would. Um, most people really have a tough time. We're using these big numbers, and they don't really realize what they mean. A billion dollars, just to put it more in things we could better understand, is earning $1 million for each of a 1,000 years. So when somebody says it's a billion dollars, that's not a small number, and we throw it around like it's inconsequential. The, virtually every study has said that there's at least a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of savings we could produce in this country if we just solve some of these problems. And that's before you look at the administrative issues. I, I believe it's, it's more than that. It could be as much as $350 billion. So if we fix this, we could really dramatically reduced, reduce care for everyone and make it far more accessible for everyone. Some people are always advantaged by leaving things broken. Like, right, your, your desire to fix this, um, I share. And I, um, I, share this, I share a similar desire uh, about rethinking education in the United States of America. Um, and so, and immigration. Like, I, have, I, am, I am a big systems thinker when it comes to what's broken. I also recognize that immediately when we start talking about things like this, there are any number of individuals and institutions um, who are benefited by keeping it broken. So talk about um, sort of what's required by each of us and all of us to move this conversation forward in the culture. Well, you, first of all, that's a very insightful observation you have. There are people with, who are economic stakeholders in, this, in the existing model. And the, the good news is that there will be economic stakeholders in any model. And so when we change the model, all we're doing is changing potentially the stakeholders. It doesn't mean that there won't be an economic benefit that arises out of it. And, and everybody wins if we have a more efficient healthcare system um, in, because the, the, the entire economy should grow and people should be more self-reliant and, and more productive. Everything should be better. We should bring joy to the world, hopefully, through this. So in order for people to change it, they've got to be active themselves. They've got to take personal responsibility and recognize that they as an individual can go be uh, an activist for this conclusion by taking control of their own inter interrelationships with their own physicians and other caregivers. Go to the doctor and say, hey, I'd like to have, I'd like to pay you directly for this. What will it cost? What happens if I change my deductible from you know, $100 or $250 or $500 or $1,000 up to $10,000 and then put more that money that I was going to spend on the deductible into the health savings account that I keep. If they just take some of these little minimum, de minimum steps, these small steps, I think they can have a big impact and they can create a trend. And that's what I'm hoping to see. I'm hoping to see people rise up and say, hey, 
I want something different. I want more control over my own health care. I want to be personally responsible, and I want government to help me not get in the way. All right. If that sounds um, really interesting and provocative to you, the website is the 60percentsolution.com. You can also get there by just typing in rethinking.healthcare. Um, Todd, I want healthcare systems that are, here's my list after reading your book. I didn't, I didn't have a list beforehand, but now I know what's on my list. I want healthcare systems that are personal, available, affordable, transparent, compassionate, and proactive. What am I missing? And not, gosh, that was fantastic. Not a darn thing. You're spot on. So I want to, um, you know, I don't want to just become more educated about this. I want to, you know, I want to be engaged on this topic. And you've really supplied, um, like, this educational material that's very accessible. I would have guessed that this was a... Uh, this was an area where I would need more than one book to understand the problem and to imagine how I might help, uh, you know, bring about an absolute transformation or reformation in, in healthcare in America. But you've really put it within reach of everybody. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. I, I worked really hard on making the message straightforward and also making it intentionally ideologically impure, meaning mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can have purity, but that's going to argue to the detriment of actual, an actual solution. Um, so I'm really grateful that you saw that in the book, and it means that uh, some of my hard work paid off. I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, it's just excellent. Um, all right, so Todd Furness, you you've probably uh, you've probably seen him on you know big fancy outlets uh, and read him in big fancy papers, but he's here today on Mornings with Carmen, and we're very very grateful for that. Uh, rethinking. Dot healthcare is where you can find the 60% solution. That's the name of the book, the 60% solution. And if you type out all those words, the 60% solution.com, you can find tons of really great information about what we talked about today. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Carmen. I'm grateful. Yeah. Give our greetings to our friend, Jim Dennison. Will do. All right. We'll be right back. All right. I appreciate those of you who are wondering where the good doctor from uh, Cedarville University is. Why did we not get our COVID update today? Um, All right. So just Google COVID and hit the news button and you probably get all of the things that we would have talked about today um, had the good doctor been on. We are um, we are weaning ourselves a little bit. So he's not going to be on every Monday. um, And it's also uh, that time of year when educators are really busy with things. And so we are giving some of them a break um, as well here at the end of the academic year. So there you go. Uh, don't worry. He'll be back, um, but not every week. Do I have that right, Paul? I think that's pretty. I mean, also Something the pandemic like is hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, right. We're weaning ourselves. Down. We're winding down. <laughs> right. I mean, hopefully. Yes. Um, hopefully. Hopefully. Paul, uh, yeah. Paul and I are very, very hopeful. Um, so we're not ignoring the topic. Um, certainly, we just uh, recognize there's just a whole lot of other things. Uh, to talk about as well. So there you go. Thanks for asking. Okay. So um, today, as you are surveying the headline news of the day, let me encourage you to uh, bring the mind of Christ to bear on every consideration and conversation. And that means we have to cultivate the mind of Christ. And in order to do that, we have to be in the Word of God. So if you have not uh, been there and done that already today, let me encourage you 
to spend some time in the Word of God. Where are you in the Word today? I am in First Peter. That's where my Sunday school class is uh, studying. I am in the book of Romans. That is uh, the book that we are working our way through as a congregation. And, uh, and Jim and I um, have been uh, studying um, some various passages of Scripture as well as he is working on some, uh, some teaching videos. And so where in the Word are you today? Let us be in the Word of God before we get out there into the world that God so loves. We want to do so in ways that honor Jesus. Let me invite you, if you haven't been there lately, to visit us at MyFaithRadio.com. Check out all of our May offerings designed to more fully equip you um, for just a life that's pleasing to God. All right, so thanks for being with us today, taking us with you. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.